0: Welcome back from summer, and welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Verrocchio. My first guest is Andrew Butterfield, the curator of Verrocchio, Sculptor and Painter of Renaissance Florence. It's the first monographic exhibition in the United States to examine Verrocchio, one of the most influential teachers and artists of the early Renaissance. The exhibition opens at the National Gallery of Art in Washington on September 15th and continues through January 12th, 2020. It includes roughly 50 works by Verrocchio and his students and collaborators, including Leonardo da Vinci, Domenico Ghirlandaio, and Pietro Perugino. Pretty all star cast. The fantastic exhibition catalog was published by the NGA and Princeton University Press. Amazon offers it for $60. On the second segment, Stephanie Sihuko. And of course, please continue to rate and review us wherever you download the show. Those numbers have been going up, and it's great to see, and it's helping new people find us. Andrew Butterfield, after the break. <coughs> With the fall exhibition season about to begin, I'm thrilled to announce two upcoming live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings. First up is a program with the artist Tiffany Chung at the Sheldon Museum of Art in Lincoln, Nebraska. Chung is one of three artists in the Sheldon's ongoing exhibition Unquiet Harmony, the Subject of Displacement, a show which examines how artists have engaged with issues surrounding migration. We'll be taping at the museum on Wednesday, September 25th at 5.30 p.m. Then on Tuesday, October 15th, I'll be at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth to talk with Robin O'Neill about We the Masses, a survey of O'Neill's 20 years of art making that opens at the Modern that week. Our conversation will begin at 7 p.m. Hope to see you all there. And if anyone comes to both tapings, in Lincoln and Fort Worth, let me know and we'll be sure to come up with some kind of prize. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary Indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of Indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash voices. Experience theater under the stars at the Getty Villa this September. This year's outdoor production is The Heel*, a bold new version of Sophocles' timeless tale, directed by Aaron Posner and co-produced by Maryland's Roundhouse Theater. Posner creates an irreverent, spiritual, musical exploration about the wounds we carry, the ones we cause, and the redeeming power of human connection. Performances begin September 5th and run through September 28th. Learn more and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. And we're back. Andrew Butterfield, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Thanks to the usual nudge from Vasari, Andrea del Verrocchio was long overshadowed and and really sometimes obscured by his students and assistants. And that's kind of a big story in this show. So before we get into Verrocchio, who did his assistants include? And as many of them are present in the show and catalog, why did you think it was important to include them?
1: Verrocchio's most famous pupil is Leonardo da Vinci, who came to work and live with Verrocchio when he was about 12 or 13. We don't know the exact age, but anyway, in uh, earlier mid-adolescence and remained with Verrocchio until he was at least 26 years old. We know that on a documentary basis and may have been with him until he was almost 30 years old. It was the most important artistic relationship of his life. It formed many of uh, Leonardo's goals and his ambitions and a sense of excellence, but he was not the only pupil to or assistant to have been profoundly impacted by Verrocchio. Among the other assistants was a less famous person named Lorenzo de uh, Lorenzo de Credi, but there was also Ghirlandaio, Domenico Ghirlandaio and uh, likely Botticelli for a short time in Botticelli's youth, as well as Perugino. And the influence of Verrocchio on his pupils had an enormous impact on the next generation of painters and sculptors, and through them the history of Western art. In addition to Leonardo, the other major founders of what is normally referred to as the High Renaissance were Michelangelo and Raphael, and Raphael was a pupil of Perugino, and Michelangelo was a pupil of Giotto. So the three major fa- of the three major founders of the High Renaissance in painting and sculpture, Verrocchio taught one and taught the teachers of the other two.
0: And, and it's an amazing story that uh, is threaded throughout the catalog, which is really terrific. One of Verrocchio's earliest work is a a christ endowing Thomas from the Orsan Michele in Florence. It's not in the show, but it's substantially addressed in the catalog. The catalog really kind of opens with it. Charles Dempsey has an essay in the catalog, and he writes that, quote, This image of a compassionate Christ with his noble forehead and lowered gaze passes from Verrocchio to Leonardo and into the canons of Western art which is kind of the sculptural representation of the teaching lineage you, you a sculptural representation of the teaching lineage you just uh, laid out. What are some of the places in Verrocchio's work, especially in the show, that we can see the ideas or forms of presentation that become significant moving forward into the High Renaissance?
1: One place where it is very clear is in a sculpture called the Puta with a Dolphin, which is a bronze uh, statue about oh, two feet, two and a half feet tall, and shows a puto or eros, a winged little creature, human, humanoid creature, who is holding a dolphin in his hands and uh, spinning on, or seeming to spin or run, this combination of running and flying, but he's poised on one foot and one foot is raised, and the creature is r- sort of wriggling in his arms, and he has this look of delight on his face, and his hair looks wet and windswept, and his wings are extended as if he's... And you can see sort of the, how they're uh, propelling him. The, you can sort of see the tension in the wings as, as part of the movement of the figure. This figure, this statue was extremely influential. First of all, it was influential on... Uh, Leonardo. Leonardo made a number of drawings uh, in the late 1470s and or, or around 1480 uh, in preparation of making a painting of the Madonna and Child. And these drawings are called the Madonna of the Cat collectively. They're called the Madonna of the Cat because they show a Madonna with a Christ child in his lap who is holding a cat. And the inter, the interaction of the motions of Those figures, similar to the interaction of the puto and the dolphin in Verrocchio's statue. The sculpture was also very important because it was the first one to be planned to be equally or nearly equally beautiful from every point of view as you walk around it. So rather than a statue which only has has one principal face, the, the front of the sculpture, this is a sculpture where, as the, you're supposed to be able to walk it around it and see how the composition keeps changing and resolving into a new beautiful uh, composition. so that idea of a spiraling composite of a composition that could work from every viewpoint was one that Donatello had begun to play with, but Verrocchio was the first artist to take it all the way and say, we'll we'll make it work from 360 degrees. That became a major point or a sign of excellence in sculpture in Italy for the next 150 years or almost 200 years. So in Florence, the most important representative of it, uh, of this ideal in the 16th century was an artist named John Bologna, but uh, it was also Michelangelo, something Michelangelo aspired to do. And it's something that Bernini aspired to do, to make a sculpture work in the round. The sculpture is also an example of what in Italian is called the figura serpentinata, meaning a figure who is in a kind of snaky or serpentine pose, and which was extremely important to artists for the next 150 years. The importance of the sculpture uh, is not something that art historians need to reconstruct retrospectively. In that there is an account from the end of the 16th century by a major uh, figure in the arts in Florence, who says this is a sculpture that ev- that all of the, the sculptors today still hold in the highest regard. So 100 and 100, 120 years after it's made, it's still uh, something that is a touchstone of excellence in sculpture. So that is an example uh, that you can see in the show of how the work of Verrocchio was fundamental for artists for the next uh, several generations. And the sculpture is also perhaps a touchstone in that it is likely based or inspired by an ancient Greek description of a statue of Eros, which the Medici had the only manuscript copy of. So it is a likely a, a source for the idea, the conceit of the sculpture, and therefore would show Verrocchio aspiring to achieve the excellence of antiquity. And the sculpture also is a masterpiece of naturalism, even though it's showing a mythic creature, in that it captures effects which no one had tried to represent before, such as showing the hair sort of looking like it's streaming with water or suggesting, there's no water depicted, but it suggests that it's activated, that partly what you're seeing is wet hair, wet, wind-blown hair. So this desire to always push the envelope, the margin, the boundary of naturalism further than anyone had ever gone before is something you find in Verrocchio over and over again.
0: I, I'd add, it even kick-started 20th century sculpture, because you know when Matisse visits Florence with Leo Stein in 1907, He almost certainly sees it and immediately brings that 360 degree idea into his work, into his sculptures. Two Negresses, um, which is in Baltimore, and the Serpentine, which is at the Nasher and the Hirsch. There there, there are a number of them. The Two Negresses and the Serpentine, and then likely Aurora, too, which, which Matisse started in late 06 and early 07 and may have or probably finished after returning from that trip to Florence and Italy with with the Steins. And then, of course, Picasso picks up on the idea uh, through Matisse in the late 1920s and early 1930s. You mentioned Donatello a moment ago. The the earliest-ish work in the show dated to around 1465, so when Verrocchio was about 30 years old, is a bronze uh, with some gilding of David with the head of Goliath, and the head is leaning up against uh, David's shin it's a sculpture in which Verrocchio addresses Donatello's famous David, which at that point was from the previous generation, about 30 years earlier. Where or how in Verrocchio's sculpture does he address Donatello, and what does what in it does he try to try to advance?
1: We have a uh, virtually contemporary report saying that Verrocchio was the. It's, it's in Latin, and it uses a word that's not exactly directly translatable but it says that Verrocchio was the emulus of Donatello. And an emulus, it's like our word emulate, so it means to rival someone and also to try to surpass them. And throughout his life, Verrocchio was trying to show that he was as good as Donatello or even better than Donatello. So one example is what you've just mentioned, the David, where he uh, looks at uh, Donatello's sculpture and which is this really extraordinary figure he's nude he he's very sensual it's and he's in this kind of meditative state that is difficult to interpret. We don't know really what the sculpture says. there's endless debate about it, but the pose is kind of unresolved almost in in that it has this languor to it. Verrocchio's figure instead has this kind of spiky energy. It seems to be moving forward or there's this implicit motion in it and the uh, one elbow is cutting. Is, he's holding one hand on his left hand is on his hip and the elbow is cutting into space and his right, his right hand is holding the sword and that's cutting into space. It's a much more, from Verrocchio's perspective, a much more dynamic sculpture. The Christ in St. Thomas was also made in rivalry with Donatello in a very uh, direct way in that it was commissioned to go into a niche on the church and grain storage facility in Florence of Orsan Michele. And the niche that it was going to go into had been designed by Donatello and his, possibly with assistance from another artist named Michelozzo and Verrocchio probably, almost certainly, well he certainly knew Michelozzo and probably worked with Michelozzo as a young man as part of his training. So Verrocchio plans a sculpture for a niche by Donatello and, he, and the niche was built for a statue by Donatello which was then removed around 1560, 62 or something like that, I can't remember now, and taken to the Church of Santa Croce. So a couple of years later, they decide to commission a new sculpture, and they ask Verrocchio to do it. So he is making a piece in direct rivalry with Donatello. And one of the things he sets out to show is that his sculpture can use the framework provided by the architecture of the niche better than Donatello's did. So, whereas in Donatello's, the, the niche is is extraordinarily beautiful and innovative, and the figure, which was this huge gilded statue of St. Louis of France, a Franciscan saint, that was gilded, the relationship of the figure and the niche is not that it, well integrated. Whereas Verrocchio wanted to create a dramatic a representation of a dramatic moment, the the meeting of St. Thomas and Christ after Christ's uh, resurrection. And he turns the the architecture of the niche into this kind of suggestion of the space in which the miracle took place. So he's showing that, as with the David composition, he's showing, again, my sculpture is more dynamic. And I can use, I can even do... I can even take architecture by Donatello and put it to better use than he did. And there's another case where there was direct competition between them. Or Donatello made one of the first equestrian statues in bronze since antiquity a statue of a, a general in the Venetian army named Gatta Malata, which is in Padua and uh, was finished about 1450. Around 1480, uh, Verrocchio was asked to make a statue of a general in the Venetian army, uh, which is this question statue of Bartolomeo Colleone, which was the project he was working on, Verrocchio was working on when he died in Venice in 1488 at about uh, 53. So again, Verrocchio wanted his statue to be m- more dynamic. So Uh, Donatello's statue, in Donatello's statue, the horse and the figure, the rider, are going forward, and no leg of the horse is completely off the ground. One leg is raised, but under the hoof, there's a cannonball. In Verrocchio's statue, the horse is, they're, they're also moving forward, but the horse is turning his head. One leg is off the ground without any supporting element. And the figure is turning an opposite direction in his saddle. He's turning in an opposite direction from the from the head of the horse. So there's more there's this more dynamic tension between the rider and the horse, and it has this extraordinary look of ferocity, power, command, and energy than Donatello's statue does. Donatello's statue is. Extraordinary and extraordinarily important, but somewhat like the David, is a kind of fantasy. It's this kind of fantasia on uh, about a. It's it's a create. It's a creation of Donatello's. It's less purposeful in its depiction of a powerful figure than uh, Verrocchio sought.
0: In the catalog, uh, one of the great things about the catalog is uh, it's really well designed. it over and over again presents these moments of rivalry on on the same page or on facing pages, which is you know not something one can do in in in, in real life, given that you know equestrian statues tend to stay in place. <laughs> Verrocchio didn't just work in bronze he 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 worked in other materials. What is the lady with flowers? what in it is new? and how might it relate to a Leonardo painting in the National Gallery's collection?
1: So The Lady with Flowers is a marble bust of a woman. It is uh, life-size, and it shows a woman from about mid-torso up. And it shows her dressed in these rather loose-fitting and informal garments and holding a, a little bouquet of flowers against her chest, and it, it was the first portrait bust to show a figure with the the hands and arms. It does so not simply to once as Verrocchio always wants to do, to do something more beyond what anyone had ever done before, but it also does it because there he wants to capture a moment that is described in love poetry in the Italian Renaissance and in specifically in the circle of Lorenzo de Medici in which a lover and a beloved exchange gifts of flowers and poetry and quite remarkably love poems love sonnets written by Lorenzo de Medici Lorenzo the Magnificent in the mid 1470s repeatedly describe a beautiful woman with beautiful hands holding a bouquet of flowers and it is possible we don't have any proof but it's possible that this sculpture was made to depict exactly that kind of uh, poetic moment and it quite possibly was made for Lorenzo de medici and perhaps even depicts his beloved A woman named Lucrezia Donati and that's suggested because we do have a document which says that Verrocchio painted two portraits of her. So this is a marble portrait, not a painted portrait, but it is possible that it actually is intended to depict this specific beloved of Lorenzo de' Medici. So about the same time that the sculpture was made, Leonardo made a painting of a woman named Ginevra de Benci, who was a young Florentine woman. And it shows a woman with extremely similar features. And the painting now has been cut down, but there is very good reason to believe that it once showed her with her arms and hands in a extremely similar pose and also holding flowers. And we know from on a scientific and technical basis that the panel was cut down, the panel that the Ginevra de Benchie's on. And there's a drawing by Leonardo in Windsor Castle, the Royal Collection in England, which shows a woman's hands and uh, arms holding the, a little bouquet of flowers. So the features of the two women, Ginevra de Benci and the woman in the lady depicted in The Lady of Flowers, marble bust, are very similar, their hairstyles are similar, and they were in similar poses. The similarity is sufficient that it has been one questioned repeatedly, could the two images depict the same woman? And, and the consensus is no, they don't depict the same woman, but um, they depict women in, in extremely similar moods and were made at about the same moment. And the painting of Ginevra de Benci also comes out of this world of courtly love in Florence in the mid-1470s. We don't know, oddly enough, whether the painting was initially commissioned, uh, the Ginevra de Benci painting, was initially commissioned to celebrate her wedding, or if it was actually commissioned or completed on behalf of her platonic lover, who was the Venetian ambassador, a guy named Leonardo Bembo, who was in Florence twice, resident in Florence twice in the 1470s. So those are some of the connections between the two. There have also been people who have been struck by the similarity so much as to suggest that the sculpture could, in fact, be by Leonardo instead of Verrocchio. That can be disproved on a simple basis that there are similarities uh, that are so strong between The Lady with the Flowers and other documented works by Verrocchio that there's really no basis for taking the sculpture away from Verrocchio and
0: giving it to Leonardo. The curls of, uh, of the Frick bust of a young woman, for example, I suppose.
1: Yes. And in the Beginning in 1476 and continuing till his death, it was still unfinished at, at the time of his death in 1488, Barocchio was working on this huge monument to go to, that was to go to a church in Pistoia, a town uh, a little bit northwest of Florence, which has these life-size marble figures in it of, um, it shows Christ in the center of a Being held aloft by some angels, and uh, there's some virtues running in in celebration of the life of a of a deceased cardinal, and uh, one of the angels in that monument has facial features which are extremely similar to the facial features of Ginevra. They have the bone structure is extremely similar. So that sculpture was begun at a time after Leonardo was in his studio, or, or was a active pupil assistant in the studio. And in later in life, Leonardo claimed to be able to do be able to do many things, and including modeling sculpture, meaning making it in wax or terracotta or clay and casting sculpture you know, in bronze, but he never said he could cut marble. So those are all reasons to be fairly confident that the lady with the flowers is by Ferrocchio and not by Leonardo, and the conception's by Ferrocchio and not by Leonardo. And, you know, to, and this view is a consensus view regarding the making and conception of the sculpture.
0: Speaking of Pistoia, Verrocchio wasn't just a sculptor, of course. He he was first trained as a goldsmith and then kind of learned to do everything else, uh, including painting. One of his uh, greatest paintings, not in the show, in the catalog, was made for the, the cathedral at Pistoia. And we'll have an image of that painting on on manpodcast.com. But let's kind of start in the beginning-ish with Verrocchio and painting. The, the earliest painting of his in the show, and, and maybe the earliest period... Um, is a 1465 to 70-ish Madonna and child. What does it tell us about from whom Verrocchio may have or probably learned to paint, and then what he would bring to the medium?
1: So Verrocchio likely learned to paint from another Florentine painter named Filippo Lippi, who was 30 years older than Verrocchio and uh, was the most important painter in many regards in the middle of the uh, 15th century in Florence. And we do will never know with certainty whether or not he was actually trained by Lippi directly, but we can be pretty certain on visual grounds that Lippi was the major point of reference for Verrocchio as a painter. And regarding his training. He was indeed trained as a goldsmith, as many artists were in the 15th century. But the middle of the 15th century in Florence was a time of great fluidity in which a lot of artists worked together and learned from each other, and an enormous amount of art was being produced at an incredibly high quality very quickly. And this situation created a necessity of artists to work together and to collaborate. And there was also a a lot of moving around. So one artist would work with another one for a period of time, a year, 18 months, whatever, and then, or two years, and then would turn around and work with another one. So the idea of master and pupil as being the dominant uh, form in which art practices were transmitted needs to be modified somewhat because there also was all of this inspired collaboration. So with Verrocchio, probably in the late 1450s, he went to work for Lippi, or possibly another artist who also was working for Lippi, and um, he learned an enormous amount there. And there are many elements in his painting which have their root in Lippi, and one of the things that was important about Lippi was his desire to create figures which were very three-dimensional, which had a strong modeling with light and shade. Another was his desire to capture more accurately the effects of light when they fell on a wide variety of fabrics, specifically as a kind of demonstration of excellence. Lippi aspired to show light passing through fabric, like, you know, translucent veils. Lippi was a great admirer of Netherlandish painting, Roger van der Weyden, Jan uh, Jan van Eyck, uh, sort of Hans Memling. And uh, all of these elements were very important for Verrocchio. So Verrocchio becomes one of the most important exponents of the emphasis on three-dimensional modeling in painting, and um, he's certainly the most important exponent of this in drawing. Netherlandish painting is extremely important for Verrocchio. It's through him that it becomes extremely important for Leonardo when he's a young man. There are a number of effects that uh, Lippi aspired to be excellent at that, that Verrocchio took up the same challenge. In the Pistoia altarpiece that you mentioned, Uh, The influence of Netherlandish painting is extremely clear. Above all, in the landscape, which is um, not a copy in any sense from uh, Hans Memling, but it shows its allegiance to Hans Memling very clearly. And another feature of the painting, which is extremely important, is the variety of the materials that are on display and which are represented with The highest degree of fidelity possible at that time. So there are colored marbles in particular that are very beautifully depicted. There is also this, uh, the figures, uh, it shows a Madonna and Child in the central niche flanked by a pair of saints and with this extraordinary carpet in front of it a uh, kind of a Turkish carpet, Oriental carpet. And the idea of depicting a carpet in front of the Madonna and Child was something from Netherlandish painting, And this is the most elaborate depiction of a carpet in Florentine painting. Verrocchio depicts a carpet with uh, a more complex pattern. He shows it in a, in a more, I can't think of the right word at the moment, but in a steeper foreshortening. And he also wants to show the very vari- the variation of the light on the carpet so that different as the elements of the design repeat, they respond differently to the light as it crosses on across as it falls across the carpet. then there's also this elaborate fringe hanging at the front of it these are this intense this desire to get engaged with the details and to show things as almost maniacally uh, in in, this kind of maniacal attention to detail is something that uh, Verrocchio represents repeatedly or manifests repeatedly. Perhaps most importantly, uh, as I said briefly a moment ago, the three-dimensionality that Lippi aspired to becomes enormously important for Verrocchio and through Verrocchio becomes enormously important for Leonardo da Vinci. So much so that if you look at the Baptism of Christ painting, which is by Verrocchio and Leonardo, famously the angel on the left is by Leonardo and seemingly his first painting or one of his first paintings, that the pose of that figure actually comes out of Lippi and the modeling of that figure with light, light and shade, comes out of Lippi quite directly. So it's Verrocchio who is the conduit uh, between them and which turns the one uh, path in Florentine painting into the lineage of Lippi, Verrocchio, and Leonardo. And it's also interesting that Lippi's other most famous painter was Botticelli, so when Botticelli is very young, 20, something like that, he, uh, and Lippi dies, well, Lippi first leaves Florence in, six, in 1467 and then dies in 69. Probably when Lippi leaves Florence, he turns to another ex-pupil of uh, Lippi for employment, namely Verrocchio. So for about 18 months, two years, he works for Verrocchio.
0: I I could do paintings all day, but because Verrocchio did a little bit of everything, we should probably advance to drawing. What was or were Verrocchio's major drawing innovations, and are there places in the show where we see its impact on the cast of characters we've been discussing?
1: Verrocchio was the most important draftsman of his generation in Florence. This is very clear, and his contribution to drawing is is more easily understood than his contribution to painting, where we are always confronted with issues of uh, attribution, because of the multiple hands in the in the who would assist in making an, an altarpiece a painting for Verrocchio, or in sculpture, where some of the things that Verrocchio did are are so extraordinary that there is really no precedent and no antecedent. Uh, in drawing, on the other hand, you can look at what came before and what came afterward and see very clearly what the change was that Verrocchio affected. One change was in the significant advancement of the use of charcoal and black chalk a- as drawing instruments. As as uh, And um, before Verrocchio, They were used less often, they were used less often, and uh, they weren't a a major medium for draftsmen. Brocchio, on the other hand, turned them into a major medium. And uh, the difference was that Brocchio realized that with the dark tones of black chalk and uh, charcoal, he could create a kind of infinite gradation of tone, and therefore achieve a more naturalistic depiction of three-dimensional form on uh, the flat surface of the painting, of a drawing. And he also realized that he could blend the chalk with it either using his fingers or a little, or a piece of leather, sometimes r- perhaps wrapped around something like a pencil without a point, which is called a stump. And so he could blend the shades of the chalk together and create a smoother gradation than had ever been done before. Previously, people had mostly relied on, or extensively relied on, metal point, which you can create somewhat similar effect, but not at all with the same smoothness and continuity of a change in uh, shading. So this change was enormously important for... The next generation of artists, and in particular for Leonardo, who made you know know, the term chiaroscuro, which means light dark, uh, which is the uh, use of shading to create three-dimensional modeling, and this is a foundation for Leonardo's painting style. Well, it without question comes out of Leonardo uh, out of Verrocchio's drawing techniques. Another area where he changed drawing is in the um, use of pen and ink, which he was one of the innovators in the use of pen and ink. Uh, It had been used before, and uh, there are several artists who were just a little bit older than Verrocchio and who were also trained as goldsmiths in exactly the same circle of goldsmiths uh, who were already achieving great things with pen and ink. But But Verrocchio took it to a new level of uh, freedom and ac- expressivity, and he was able to create a greater sense of movement, of, of uh, naturalistic and fluid movement than had been achieved before. This also had an enormous impact on Leonardo. There are drawings by Leonardo which look like extensions virtually of, I mean, they're just like the next step in a, in a drawing by uh, Verrocchio, Verrocchio's drawings were also extremely important for Raphael. When Raphael comes to Florence when he's about 20, 21 years old, he's certainly looking at Leonardo drawings, but he's also looking at Verrocchio's drawings and paintings. One of the things that Verrocchio invented was the motion line, which we all know from cartoons, where you have a a line which doesn't depict a still form, but in fact indicates where the figure is moving where the arm is going to go in a moment. So far as I'm aware, Verrocchio invented that. And the first people, the the next people to use it are Leonardo and Raphael. So this is something that comes directly out of Verrocchio's drawing practice. And we know that in addition to just being able to see it by looking at the works they made, we also have a virtually contemporaneous testimony to the importance of Verrocchio's drawings for Leonardo in that Sari tells us on more than on a couple of occasions he tells us that there were drawings by Verrocchio that were uh, very important to Leonardo and which he kept and the most uh, famous case is a drawing uh, drawings of women's heads with extremely beautiful arrangements of their hair and that is something that both Leonardo and Michelangelo loved, and we know from Vasari that Leonardo actually had these drawings, uh, had some of these drawings. And another element, item of testimony to this is in the, it's not unfortunately coming to the exhibition, but uh, we had hoped to have it, and it is in the exhibition, which is a drawing of a lily, which is a beautifully naturalistic depiction of a lily which is by Verrocchio, but it's a drawing that Leonardo kept to the end of his life. So we, we have very clear evidence of the impact of Verrocchio on Leonardo in drawing. And as I've already, as I said a moment ago, also on Raphael and also on Michelangelo. Another thing that Verrocchio is generally, virtually, universally believed to have created was a manner or to not have created, but to have advanced, perfected. was a manner of depicting, studying the fall of drapery, the fall of light and the fall of drapery as in, in one study. And uh, these were, they're called drawings, but in fact they're made on linen and they're made with wa- with a wash. So they're actually sort of black and white paintings, even though everyone calls them drawings. These studies of draperies were very significant for uh, Leonardo and for Gerlandio, both of whom were great practitioners of this method of studying light and uh, drapery, and also for Perugino. So these are several ways that Verrocchio advanced drawing. And, and another one is that he was one of the people who changed the nature of an artist's notebook. So, artists had notebooks, but they tended to be kind of pattern books. And Verrocchio was one of the people who turned it into something more like a modern sketchbook, in which could be the instrument for working out all kinds of ideas, uh, for studying elements, for writing down a, a line of poetry, for writing down a note to yourself, you know, don't forget to whatever. And uh, in the exhibition, we have a sheet from one of Verrocchio's notebooks, which on one side, the central uh, element, is a figure of St. Donatus, a study for the Pistoia altarpiece. And that study seems to have been begun by Verrocchio and finished by Lorenzo de' Credi, a major assistant. And then there are little sketches around that figure, which are by Verrocchio. Then on the back is a much more uh, ta- a kind of entangled uh, array of elements, uh, the largest of which is a head study possibly for the Colioni Monument. And then there are figure drawings, and there's a snatch of a, po- a line from poetry, and so on. And this is a r- extremely rare uh surviving element from a early notebook and of course again um, the influence of this kind of use of a notebook has its greatest known exponent in uh, Leonardo whose uh, many notebooks show this kind of wide diversity of uh, uses but which in, in go back to the what Verrocchio uh, was one of the first to develop
0: Finally, I think it's been a long time since I saw a modern plaster cast uh of an artwork in a museum exhibition, but you have one here. What is it? What is it? What is it of? And and why did you decide and maybe why were you forced to decide to have a cast in the show?
1: The uh cast depicts uh the entombment of Christ and um it is in uh very low relief and it's I don't know it's, Eight by ten, eight by eleven, sort of that size, maybe a little bit bigger. And it, it, the cast comes from the Sculpture Museum in Berlin, and it is a cast of a work that by Verrocchio, which was in Berlin and which disappeared in May of 1945. And in May of 1945, some of the survivors in Berlin. So they were living in this huge anti-aircraft tower. I mean, it's sort of like a castle. It's very a massive tower, and uh, which had survived the bombardment and the siege of Berlin. Many works of art from the museum, from uh, from one of the major museums in Berlin, had been stored there for safekeeping because the it uh, was designed to withstand bombardment. So, following the end of the war. Some of the survivors in Berlin were living in this building and they made fires out of scrap wood. uh, And one of these fires got out of control and burned many works of art. And it had been thought for a long, long time that Verrocchio's work had just been destroyed in that fire. And then a couple of years ago, a curator from the museum in Berlin, the Bodis Museum, And a curator from the Pushkin Museum in Moscow uh, revealed to the world that, in fact, Verrocchio's original still survived in damaged condition and was in a deposit of the Pushkin Museum in Moscow. And so we are... The relief is an important document for Verrocchio's style uh, later in life. It's from, from the 1480s. And we so we wanted to include a representation of it, and um, we are also including a extremely high uh, resolution photo and detail photo of the original, which the photo of which has been supplied to us by the uh, Pushkin Museum, and in and the catalog entry is written by the the two curators, the one in Berlin and the one in Moscow. So it's an extraordinary moment to further publicize the the fate of this piece, the fact that it still survives, and it's a step forward to bringing further attention to it.
0: So the original terracotta is, is still in Moscow? Yes. Even, even if loans were flowing from Russia into the United States, which they haven't for a number of years, of course, it looks from the photograph like it's not going anywhere no matter what. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> there are... Definitely elements that you can—there uh, are qualities of the relief that are clearer in the photo of the original than in the plaster, but it's the best we could do.
0: Fantastic. Andrew Butterfield, thanks so much. Thank you. 19th century Gothic literature meets San Francisco film noir— and Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, opening this Saturday at the Legion of Honor Museum. Known for playful artworks that challenge traditional storytelling, Alexander Singh explores the motif of the doppelganger through a fantastical, thrilling short film presented alongside a selection of prints, sculptures, and paintings from the museum's collection. Mirrored walls inside the exhibition create a visually striking space from which to contemplate the doppelganger motif. Catch a glimpse of your doppelganger in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, opening this Saturday at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator, Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, Signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses, 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18, 2019, through February 9, 2020. Welcome back. My next guest, Stephanie Sihuko, joins me on the occasion of two exhibitions. First, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston is showing Less is a Bore: Maximalist Art and Design through September 22nd. And the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis is about to open Stephanie Sihuko Rogue States. That opens tomorrow, September 6th. Stephanie Sihuko, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Great, wonderful. Thanks for having me.
0: Just to be weird, I want to start with a piece that is not in uh, the St. Louis show, and that is a work of yours titled I Am Anne that has been on view in a number of shows around the United States in the last year or two, and it is, for me, the most uh, touching and personal and, and in some ways the most meaningful address of, of Trumpist era or engagement with Trumpist era uh, American immigration policy. And it's a piece that comes from a Dorothea Lange photograph. When did you find, how did you come to know about the that Lange photograph?
2: What I realized was that a number of uh, photographs that were commissioned by Dorothea Lange for the internment of Japanese Americans had kind of just come to light in the sense that I I, I don't exactly know when, but... Maybe a couple of years ago, a number of new ones were released.
0: Yeah, can I let me just jump in on that for a second. The the federal government had indeed for many years suppressed them, and so by by came to light. You mean quite literally, they were freed from such suppression.
2: Exactly, and I mean, I, I guess for obvious reasons, right? Like they're not particularly flattering of the time period, and so you know, I, I'd always known about the history of the internment camps, but I think with uh, specifically, with the contemporary politics, the way it is, and the you know the refocusing now on who is considered either a citizen by you know political definition or a citizen in terms of just uh, the human definition, I think that what struck me about a particular photograph I saw was that it was shot in Oakland, California, and so being a, a Bay Area artist. You know, I'm pretty aware of, you know, the history of the city and also frequent a lot of the places that, you know, were showing up in some of these photographs. And so in particular, this Dorothea Lange photograph from 1942 showed a storefront owned by a Japanese-American businessman who, upon hearing of the internment order, posted a big banner outside a sign that literally just said, I am an American. And obviously, it was an attempt to, you know, show to the public his his personal standing as a U.S. citizen. But, you know, unfortunately, like others, you know, who were taken away to the camps, the sign was ignored or essentially meaningless, you know, in light of the politics of the day. So. That I was just struggling with how to kind of make that bridge between something that literally happened, you know, over, like, say, 70 years ago, but that we're kind of repeating or finding ourselves um, sliding towards again. And I wanted to do it also in a way that was very respectful. And so I think, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of artworks that say resuscitate protest signage or, you know, kind of bring forward historical imagery, but I, I didn't necessarily want to just appropriate it directly, but give it a kind of twist. So the, by translating it into a large fabric panel that also acts as either a, a room divider or a large banner, it had a multiplicity of ways in which it could, you know, have a new life
0: one one of the ways it it could and ha- indeed has had had a life is the the sign in the lang picture is 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 a rectangle it's hanging there you can read every word it's white lettering on a black background um yours is on textile and can be forgive the technical term scrunched up <laughs> how important and indeed why is it important that the that, that your textile sculpture can be shortened, scrunched, whatever the, the... I obviously don't know what the word is, but I hope you, I hope you know what I mean.
2: No, yeah. Um, actually, it's funny. I, I, I refer to it as being retracted. And so, you know, similar how um, it's on a track. So there, it, there is the possibility of opening and closing the text. So, you know, when, when it's fully open, it literally reads, I am an American, exactly as the original sign was. But I've specified that when it's exhibited that the last word, American, winds up being contracted to the point of illegibility. And that was also, you know, that's, that's a kind of nod to the notion of, you know, citizenship being taken away or even, you know, in that case, in many cases, ignored. But the notion, too, that it could be opened or that there's the possibility for it to be, you know, unfurled at some point is, you know, the the flip side of it, that it's a time-based piece in a weird way. And I haven't quite figured out when it would be, I guess, justifiable to open it up again.
0: So I Am Anne is is on textile. You have used textiles in all kinds of your work for, for many years. Why is textile important to you as something out of which you make your work?
2: So, you know, I come from a fairly traditional sculpture background in the sense that, you know, I I was trained on making objects, mostly crafted objects, too. So, you know, when textiles in a way offered a, a fairly straightforward way to work on things at different scales. So, you know, just literally, you know, if you don't have a studio that's very big, a textile project can be, you know, opened up, it could be, you know, folded back out, and it can take up a lot of visual space. So, you know, one of the first reasons was literally because of its physical, you know, ability to, to change spaces. And at, at some point it shifted, though, to, towards an interest in looking at historical images of protest And how, you know, banners and slogans have also been used on textiles in different time periods.
0: There is a shot in the Art 21 segment on you that shows one of your studio walls. And Lang's I Am an American picture is on the wall. You printed it out. Anybody can do that from the Library of Congress site or or Calisphere, the Bancroft's Calisphere, where where Bancroft images are housed. Um, And next to it on your wall is one of your Cargo Cult pictures. In, in, in which um, you wear clothes you have purchased at like a mall store and you have remade them or you have you have worn and you have assembled them on your person in ways that recall, say, 19th century photographs of people in Africa or early 20th century photographs of people in, 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 in an indistinct culture. Is there a relationship in your mind between what you did with the Lang and the cargo cults pictures?
2: Yeah, because they seem to refer to really different time periods, right? Like the, the the cargo cult images, so I did those five years ago. You know, back then I think my main preoccupation was issues of empire and colonialism, because you know, I was looking at like large swaths of history and also thinking about my own personal background as a Filipino American. And, you know, given the the many centuries of colonization through the Spanish, the Americans, the Japanese, you know, just multiple waves of it looking at the photographs that were produced, you know, during the the time of American Empire was really fascinating to me because somehow I thought that that was a way to examine how I would have been viewed or might even still be viewed in terms of, you know, where my origins come from. So, you know, the the othering that happens within ethnographic photographs, I think, was a real strong contrast to how I feel as an American citizen, you know, as someone who was raised in the U.S. And so in trying to kind of find both myself and also think about how Americans viewed, you know, their um, international charges I was really inspired by a lot of the early ethnographic photographs. But I, again, it's kind of similar to, you know, the appropriation or the changes that happened with the I am Anne uh, Dorothea Lang photograph. I did want to give it more of a contemporary twist. So, you know, there is, I think, that what, uh, what both of them have in common is this notion of uh, resuscitating an image, you know, resuscitating a photograph, but then hopefully also interjecting you know, a contemporary critical lens.
0: Yeah, it does. But but for me, what what was interesting about seeing them on the wall together is that so much of your work addresses what it means to be air quotes authentic and who gets to determine what air quotes authentic is. And that section of studio wall almost looked like a you know storyboard for extending relationships into new bodies of work.
2: Yeah, no I'm glad you you see that because I think sometimes people there's I think a perception that my work jumps around because you know sometimes it's photo based sometimes it's textile based sometimes it you know is installation or even social practice and I and I I appreciate it when people are able to see a kind of through line or thread you know, through it.
0: One of the ways you have extended your interest in authenticity is through the use of chroma key. Chroma key is maybe more commonly known as that green screen color that allows TV or film or what have you to project or print images of something else behind a person, behind a—you can tell I'm not a film person in my, my description here— how did you come to discover chroma key, and and how quickly did you kind of fall in love with it?
2: <laughs> uh, well, it's definitely a, a really crazy color, but I, I, yeah, I have a background also in. Uh, for a while, I worked as a, a graphic designer in print and uh, online media, and and also as a, a exhibition designer. So, I do have a lot of. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking at and processing images. And, uh, you know, so Photoshop as, you know, one of the main image editing uh, software pieces was really kind of formative because it framed everything that I did, you know, so the, the filters, the backgrounds, the methods of, you know, masking or dodging and burning, even though it's a digital version of, a, of what used to be an analog photographic process, I, I became really fascinated in how the, you know, the, the kind of ho- the structure of image editing and photography actually informs or potentially informs some of the politics, you know. So everything from, say, removal or, you know, collage or overlap, like those are all totally possible. And then you're bending reality you know, and kind of, you know, changing the perception of uh, of an image. So the I think Chroma Key came up because thinking about its ubiquity, Right. Like most uh, television studios uh, work with promo Key to superimpose, you know, a narrator or a speaker against something else. It's it's such a present, you know, kind of uh, technique. But the funny thing is you're not supposed to see it. And so there was this notion, too, of like, how can something be so visible, you know, so startlingly unnatural and different and yet substitute or it, uh, be available to be substituted for absolutely anything else, you know, any background, whatever. So I was thinking a lot about what what else is invisible in American culture and, you know, the power structures, the, um, you know, the historical narratives that get edited and changed. And so Chroma Key started to become, you know, this, for me, this really powerful metaphor of, the possibility and the danger of subbing in any narrative that is convenient for the you know the the political party in power
0: it's it's also a way of suggesting or indicating that w- w- with chroma key a single entity gets to decide what's authentic there's not a discourse or a multiplicity of voices deciding what gets to be authentic
2: exactly and that and also everyone can kind of have or potentially project a, a subjective, you know, experience or viewpoint on top of it. So it's like a cipher. It's like a it, it's almost a Rorschach test or an open field.
0: You've extended your interest in authenticity and reality into again, I'm, my, my 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 terminology is going to be awful here. Into digital manipulation and construction. So it's not just in in, in chroma key works, but in works like Spectral City, A Trip Down Market Street which is your kind of remake of the um, famous and fascinating 1906 Miles Brothers film, wherein uh, the Miles Brothers literally taped a camera to the front of a cable car uh, in in Cable Railroad uh, in San Francisco that goes down Market Street and toward the Ferry Building. And it was made famously just a week or three before the, the 1906 earthquake and fire. Is there a reason, whether it's political or socio-cultural or or something else, that that Miles Brothers film feels particularly now to you?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, so again, maybe it's a personal connection, you know, that, that started it as well. Like, I grew up in San Francisco, and so my memories of, you know, the city, while obviously not that early, you know, for when the film was made, the... The reality of the city as I grew up in it is completely different from how it is today. And, you know, that's not highly unusual in terms of how cities change. But what I was really trying to do was create this juxtapose, you know, this original analog old time style film of, you know, the main drag of Market Street in San Francisco, with this kind of new Google vision that seems to inform and influence all, you know, everything that gets produced in San Francisco, and then also all the the disjunctive, you know, kind of civic life that is happening now. So I think that, you know, there, there's also this interesting, I, I think, fascination with the analogue that's happening. Right. Like as, as we get deeper into this kind of, you know, technological lens and screens, you know, surprisingly, you know, like LPs and cassette tapes and now, and film cameras, you know, are back because there's this probably romantic fascination with what that era, you know, what, what having a physical object can do versus, you know, the, the virtual space. So, yeah, I guess, you know, trying to create that bridge was important. And, I think there's also this uh, sort of beauty and horror in the new film that I made in which, you know, we're we're literally seeing the city through the lens of the the technology takeover of San Francisco.
0: It also references the history of San Francisco's urban construction and and Market Street, which is even in San Francisco, kind of an under-recognized major thoroughfare. Um, The city's always talking about remaking it and never does. In in the 19th century, before the earthquake, before the 1906 earthquake, Market Street was known as the Slot. And if you lived south of the Slot, you lived in a not desirable part of town where the meatpacking industries and similar such urban industrial filth was. And if you lived north of the Slot, especially high up on hills, you were living the good life and and your piece kind of further uh jumbles and complicates the history of of one of america's more historic boulevards by pushing it forward in ways that kind of refer to how that part of the city has changed and how south of the slot today you know tech has taken over Uh, so it works for me on all kinds of fun levels (laughs) the last body of work i want to ask about, are your natural orchids pictures? And before I do, could you kind of set up what they are for the listeners and and detail how you made them?
2: Yeah. So uh, the work is called Neutral Orchids.
0: I'm sorry. Yes, neutral. I can't read.
2: (laughs) No, no no worries. Uh, Okay. So uh, there's a photographic body of work called Neutral Orchids, and um, it features a number of what appear to be these very gray ashen looking flowers, you know, exotic orchids that have been spray painted gray using neutral gray primer, and then photographed against a a perfectly neutral gray backdrop. So there's this, you know, the there's a kind of blending in of like foreground and background. There's the covering over by using the gray paint, you know, of the details of the orchid, And I had done this work just not long after the Cargo Cult series. And, you know, the Cargo Cults work being a kind of really strong lens at ethnographic patterning, you know, the history of, you know, the view, the the way that empire views its subjects. And I was trying to think about a way of creating a a kind of similar metaphor, but not using human stand-ins. And, you know, so the, the still life genre of the the flower, you know, or a floral arrangement or a, a tabletop arrangement, I thought could be a really rich way to explore it. So, you know, I literally spray painted the orchids, you know, and shot them. And the amazing thing about it is that they actually lived for quite a while in this way. I think one of the most interesting things is that there is one image of a, one of the orchids that um, I returned to the studio a couple days after its initial spray and it had bloomed. So there's this a, a kind of white bloom that you know, has pushed through you know, the kind of uh, pal of death.
0: Yeah, the paint was, the paint didn't kill
2: it; but it kept living. Yeah, and you know, and that was surprising. But I, I guess for me, neutral orchids was really about this the, this fiction of neutrality too. Like I, I've been thinking a lot about you know, like between the poles of black and white, is this area many shades of gray <laughs> that are also supposedly these spaces of in betweenness or neutrality, and I you know, in covering up the orchids and, and kind of denying them their, their, their color, you know, was a suffocating thing to do, you know, eventually it will kill them. And I also, I, I, I wanted to sort of talk about issues of the fiction of the exotic as well, you know, so I actually see it as a kind of violent act, like, you know, killing, I was sort of surprised too, about, you know, there were a lot of people that actually were quite bothered that I was killing orchids, <laughs> You know, for the for the photos in which I I actually think that that's you know a, a pretty minor minor thing to do in the grand scheme of things.
0: Because for me, I mean, you know, that's interesting. That went in a place I really wasn't expecting. Because my question was going to be, did you intend them as a metaphor for assimilation and uh, the the kind of false insistence that the only way to become something when one is anotherhood or has a certain lineage is to assimilate and and i you know not to get overly biographical but you have lived in the united states since since you were 3 you became a citizen at 26 you're not 26 anymore and i guess my question was going to be did you intend it to be a metaphor for assimila- assimilation and is there some autobiography in that series
2: yeah right so there there's this kind of the, the well-known phrase of america being a melting pot you know i think in the last that's recently been debunked as a, as a kind of goal because, you know, melting things together and kind of turning different cultures into a mush as opposed to, you know, having distinct forms that can be considered American is, uh, is something that I was playing around with in the back of my head with, the, with uh, that work and actually a number of other works. So, you know, the, the funny thing too about the orchids is, you know, they're, they're a ubiquitous decorator item. You know, if someone wants to buy an orchid, you can go to Trader Joe's and just buy as many as you want for, you know, a really good price, actually. So there, most orchids are, are cloned as well. You know, so there's this there's a notion that they're, they're bred for a kind of an exotic window into something. But there, a lot of it is completely, I guess, uh, narrated, you know, in a way that isn't quite true anymore. Like orchids are you know, they're gorgeous, of course, but they're a dime a dozen.
0: You've made a couple of of, uh, bodies of work wherein you make flags. Um, A a piece from last year called Rogue States features the flags of allegedly hostile nations. The the flags themselves are are invented and alleged. For this new show at, at CAM in St. Louis, you've made another flag, a new flag called To the Person Sitting in Darkness. What is it? Or what will it be? What will it be?
2: Yeah. You know, along with the Rogue States Project, which you mentioned, which is, you know, 22 small flags at around three foot by five foot that are all hanging kind of in, in like a United Nations uh, convention of enemy states.
0: Yeah, hanging from a ceiling.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so folks have to kind of walk under it and feel that you're, you know, in the presence of this alternative United Nations. The the new piece, which is debuting at the Contemporary Museum in St. Louis, To the Person Sitting in Darkness, the title of that is uh, literally the title of a Mark Twain essay in which he was critiquing the American colonial endeavor in the Philippines. And so Mark Twain was from Missouri, and I think it was, uh, uh, by having it in the St. Louis exhibition, I also wanted to call forward a kind of hometown boy, you know, someone who has always been celebrated as being a fierce critic of, you know, American politics, but also someone that is, you know, highly regarded as a a kind of homegrown, you know, American author. So to the person sitting in darkness is literally a it's a six foot by 10 foot flag that is a modified version of an American flag. And it's designed based on a description that Mark Twain gave. And uh, it substitutes the stars. He literally described this. So I'm not, you know, I, I did not take any liberties at all with the design of it. It's, it's as if, you know, his, his original description is now uh, physical. It was to, the description was to replace the stars with the skull and crossbones and the white stripes with black. And that was specifically to, to talk about the kind of the, the shame and the, the death that followed the American invasion of the Philippines.
0: Twain was also often, and I'm not going to say always because he wrote a zillion words, but he was often a fierce critic of of xenophobia, whether in the United States or when he traveled in Europe. Uh, He he wrote a a famous, wild essay about uh, visiting the Habsburg Parliament and and a xenophobic debate there in which he, he skewers the xenophobes. So there are layers of history therein. Stephanie Sciuco, thanks so much for speaking with me.
2: Oh, my. Thank you so much. Good to be here.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.